Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend and Chabruta Ann Gordon. Our DAP today, Masachet Ketubot, DAP Nun Chet, page 58. Well, we have a new Mishnah again, but before we get to that Mishnah, which Ann is going to read, there are two pieces here that I want to review uh, from the previous Mishnah, which talked about this waiting period and this question of whether or not a woman could start truma, uh, start to eat truma if the 12 months had passed, but for some reason the wedding was delayed. And Rabbi Tarfun said that uh, he's allowed to give her um, all her food from Truma if she was supposed to marry a priest and that, you know, appointed time passed, right? Amar Abai. So Abai says the following about this. Machloket v'bat kohen l'kohen, right? This machloket is actually about the daughter of a priest who's supposed to marry a priest. Aval v'bat Yisrael l'kohen, zibre hakol mechatzeh kulinu mechatzeh trumeh. But if it's a Yisrael, right, uh, woman who's going to marry a Kohen, in that case, everybody agrees she gets half Kulin and she gets half Truma because a priest's daughter knows the halachot of Truma. She knows how to basically handle them if she were to become uh, Tame because of her Nita status. And so we don't have to worry about it. Uh, but for a Yisrael woman, right? She may not know learning. In other words, there's a learning curve here. She doesn't know exactly what to do with truma still. And so we have to give her some non-truma food as well. So Abai has a totally innovative read on Rabbi Tarpon's opinion that it can't be talking about a Yisrael woman who marries a Kohen. It can only be Kohen to Kohen marriage. But Amar Abai, and Abai goes on to say, Machloket ba'arusad, that this Machloket is about a betrothed woman, Right, whose wedding date came about the nisua, but with a married woman, everybody agrees that her husband has to give her half sake, you know, half chulin, half sacred food, and half truma, right? So that the woman doesn't have to go through the process. And Cohen woman, because when she's tummy, she also uh, cannot eat the truma, but she knows what to do. So, but once they're fully married, whether it's Yisrael to a Kohen or a Kohen to a Kohen, he needs to provide her with some Truma food, some Kodesh food, and some Chulin food so that it's just easy for her to have food. All right. Tananami Hachi. So we learned this in a brace also. Rabbi Tarfon Omer, Rabbi Tarfon said, no, nin laha kol Truma, right? He must give her all Truma. Rabbi Akiva Omer, mechatzeh Chulin. Umechatzeh truma, right? Rabbi Akiva says half from uh, from truma, uh, sorry, half from chulin and half from truma. But medzvarim amurim bevat koin lekoin. About bat yisrael lekoin, dibre hakol mechatzeh chulin umechatzeh truma, right? So this brisa sort of clarifies. Abaye, you know, is basically looked at this brisa and he's like, this has to be what this mission is talking about. So according to Rabbi Akiva, it's all truma. If we're talking about a coin to coin. Uh, you know, marriage. Rabbi Akiva says, no, even coin to coin, you still should give half kulin and half truma. But everybody agrees that if it is bat Yisrael to a coin, it has to be mechatzeh kulin, mechatzeh truma. Bamed varim amarim, ba'arusa, aval benisua divreya kol mechatzeh kulin, mechatzeh truma. Right? And so again, if it's with an arusa, this is what we're talking about, but for nisua, everybody agrees, whether it's coin to coin or Yisrael to coin you get half chulin and half um, half truma. Now, my question when I read this in is then, why wasn't this Bryce of the Mishnah? Because it's much clearer than our actual Mishnah. 
Rabbi Yehuda ben Batera Amaris, Rabbi Yehuda ben Batera says, so he has a very interesting read here. He gives two parts truma and one part chulin. Uh, now, the reason for that is the Mepharshim explained this, is that when you really think about a woman's monthly cycle, now remember, they didn't employ, you know, today people use birth control or other birth control, you know, methods so that they may not have a typical 28-day cycle. But at the times of the mission of the Gemara, there was that typical 28-day cycle. So you're actually tum- tahor more than your tummy. So why would you do half and half? It should be two thirds and half. In other words, you're going to need more. Tr- you would you would need you would be eligible to eat truma more than you would be to eat chulin, right? And so what does he do? Rabbi Yehuda says, Omer, no nin truma. You can give everything truma. And then she just goes ahead. She sells the truma that she can't eat when she's tummy, and she buys chulin. Right, wherever truma is mentioned, he has to give her double the amount that she would receive of non-sacred food. So in other words, we want to make sure that she doesn't have any problem finding buyers for truma. Truma is harder to sell because less people can buy it, right? There isn't as much of demand. Only Kohanim can eat it. So it doesn't have as good of a price. So you basically have to give her more truma than you know she could eat so that she could even sell it at a lower price, but not really be losing out and basically wouldn't mind doing that. So my benayimu, what's the difference between Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Shimon Gamliel? And the Gemara answers, Eka benayimu tircha. The difference is basically tircha, right? According to Rabbi Yehuda, she's got to find the effort to find these buyers who will then she can go ahead and purchase chulin food so that she can eat. And the husband basically needs to give her an amount of truma that's equal to the value of the non-chulin food. Reverend Chilmigam Leo basically says, no, there's additional truma that you get so that it's not as much trouble to actually sell it, right? You have sort of an overabundance of food. So, you know, interesting passage, because when we read the initial Mishnah, by Abaye bringing this brysa, we have a totally different read. And again, I think it also drives home this passage how complicated it was for a Bat Yisrael to marry a Kohen. There was a whole set of halachot. If you were a Bat Yisrael who got to marry a Kohen, you had to learn a new set of halacha that you didn't know at all. And I think that probably explains why probably my assumption would be Kohanim married Kohanim probably very, very often because you they were used to it. They, they knew the rules uh, of what Kohanim uh, had to do. And to have to think about even the second level of like, what did a woman Kohen do, uh, you know, during her times of being tame is like you're in your house and everyone else can touch Truma. The question I have is sort of she must have not prepared Truma food. So I assume that there must have been another woman in the household who probably prepared that food. I'm not going to go as far to say the male Kohen cooked dinner that night. <laughs> that that probably is not exactly uh, not exactly uh, what happened. It, it must have been hard to be about Israel to move into Kohanim. That's all. Like, there's a lot of halacha you have to learn with the handling of truma. Um, okay, one last thing I want to just point out is, you know, we had this thing of Zomishnah Rishonah, right? That the previous mission sort of self-edits itself um, and says that, you know, after these 12 months, the woman can take part of the truma, but then eventually the Beitzin came and said, no, that that's actually not true. She has to get to the chuppah. 
And so the question here, they really explain why. My simpun. Right? So because Ula says the name of Rav Shmuel Baruda, because of simpun. Right? So the idea of simpun is, is that it's possible the husband would find some reason that he no longer wanted to marry her. And then she basically would have eaten truma, you know, when she should not have eaten truma. So, okay, this makes sense according to Ula, right? That, you know, this first version of the Mishnah that she can't eat the truma when she's in her father's house, right? After a Rusin, right? Because, right? Right? Because maybe she'll pour a cup of truma while she's in her father's house, right? But the latter ruling that it's actually that she's to wait until she gets to the chuppah being due to simpum, these actually seem to be two totally different reasons, okay? So according to Rav Shmuel Bar Yehuda, right, if we're saying that the first ruling is because of simpum and the second one is because of simpum, what's the difference really between the initial version of the mission and, and the second one? So I don't think I explained this totally well. There's some discussion about this on the previous step also as well. So the question is, are there two different reasons here about also getting to the chuppah and the chuppah there being simpum, or is it just simpum in general? So the Gemara says that the difference is, is that a bidikat chutz, which I guess in English would be translated as sort of like a, a superficial investigation. In other words, it was an investigation that could have been done on the groom's behalf by other relatives, right? Right. So one of the sages holds that is this type of bidikat chutz that a relative could do is still considered a bidika. And he therefore, once he says he wants to marry her and the marriage day comes, right? If there was a bidikat chutz done, then we don't worry about simpum at all, right? But the other one holds that even if there was a bidikat chutz done, right, there's still a concern of simpun that maybe he'll say, like, you know what, I don't actually want to marry her. So I, I, it's, a, you know, again, it's interesting to see sort of what were some of the reasons that people could have backed out. And this idea of there being this bidikat chutz, that someone else did the inspection instead of him. I think shows us that like, you know, in a way that I think we're totally surprised that couples, families may have spent more time with one side of the couple than the actual couples themselves. Like they did a it's, lot of staking out for them. <laughs> okay, I'm going to actually pick up on a bet with a Mishnah. Um, the Mishnah, again, I find the crafting of the Gemara fascinating and so well done in terms of the fact that we're kind of primed for this discussion of Kohanim, non-Kohanim, holy things, right? Meaning, if I was thinking that we were talking about marriage and so on, right, Ketubot topics, this last little bit has primed us for Kohanim topics. And then the Mishnah says, now again, the Mishnah was compiled before the Gemara. So, you know, in, in crafting the structure of the daf, it exactly leads into the Mishnah, even though it really comes long afterwards in terms of the composition. If a man would were to consecrate, you know, dedicate to the Beit Hamikdash, for example, his wife's earnings, meaning 
anything that she makes, everything, anything that she produces, any she's spinning, she's it's right. We we say earnings, but it's masayadem, meaning it's everything that she uh, puts out into the world, really, right? So that really belongs to her husband. We've talked about this, you know, the equation of masayadem go to her and what he provides for her in exchange. Harezo ose osa v'ochelet. So the Mishni here says she can continue to work and sustain herself from her earnings, meaning that whole process of turning it hectic didn't work. Meaning, because as much as he owns them, he can't, he doesn't own them to mess with them, at least until she's paid for everything that she needs to pay for in order to be able to just, you know, provide for, for whatever is needed within the home, right? That she can do and eat, right? That's the bottom line. But Hamotar, what about anything that's left over? Meaning anything that would be, we'll call it savings for nowadays, right? Meaning as compared to the things that are needed for immediate use and to sustain the household, So there's this machloket between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yochanan whether that, um, whether his designation of her as um as hektesh, whether it kicks in for the extra or it does not. Rabbi Yochanan Sanlar says no. Rabbi Meir says it is. It works, meaning he had that right, right? So we'll come back to this machlok in a little bit in a moment. But first, just to, to remind us about how, you know, this dynamic between or what I call the equation between what the wife does and how the husband then comes into ownership of her property, right? I mean, of her of her earnings, of her whatever she produces, and likewise what she's entitled to from him. So Amar Rav Huna Amar Rav Yichola Ishalomar Levala Eni Eni Nizonit Ve'Eniose. She's allowed to say, "I will not be provided for you, but provided for by you, and I also will not work." Meaning, you don't get my earnings, and I will not. You will not provide Mizono for me, and I will not provide earnings for you. So that equation can be nullified. If the wife says so, Kasavar Kitakinu Rabbanan Mizonei Ikar Omasayada Mishum Eva. Because the whole idea here, according to Rav Huna's statement to Rav, anyway, is that when they when they set up this equation, what each husband and wife is obligated to each other, it's the idea that the the whole point was that the Mizonot were what was important. Meaning, let's make sure that this woman who is now married to this man is going to be provided for, that she will have what to eat. And then, because he's providing her for her to eat, there is, you know, the idea of kind of like soothing the potential ruffled feathers of this man to say, oh, but you don't worry. You're not just, you're not providing for her for no good reason. You're going to also get her earnings, right? So that there shouldn't be any resentment between them or from him against her that she's allowed, that that he's providing for her. But she's allowed to to say no, that she doesn't want this. So just that was the the point there is just to establish that the Mishnah is talking about a case where she hasn't nullified that plan, right? He comes along and he consecrates her mas her what she's created, what she's produced. And the Mishnah's point is whatever it is that he said certainly doesn't work on what is necessary for the sustainment of the I don't know if that's a word. Of the household. Okay, the Gemara goes on, and you know, I'm jumping quite a bit, but the idea is that then there's this machloket 
there's this dispute set up here between Rish Lakish um, and basically it's lining up the Rebbe Mayer, Rebbe Mayer's opinion, right? Meaning Rebbe Mayer, again, he said that anything that was left over was going to be considered consecrated by the husband. And Rabbi Yochanan said, no way. So the question here, and I don't even want to read it inside because it's, it gets pretty complicated. And also I think, frankly, interesting lining up the machloket and seeing who says what according to whom. But the, the real issue here is that whatever she, whatever he is consecrating, right. It's, presumably to come she hasn't it's not something that she made yesterday that he has now designated designated as hectic she's saying whatever it is that you produce i'm designating that as hectic and that kind of statement doesn't work because she, you know her whatever she produces is needed to sustain the household but also the problem is that it doesn't yet exist in the world and we've talked about this i don't remember what masaka but sometime long ago here the question is asked you know doesn't Rebbe mayor agree that you cannot be makdit, you cannot designate something, you cannot consecrate something that doesn't yet exist. Because how could you possibly consecrate anything? How can you how can you make a gift of something? Whether or not it's to the Beit HaMikdash, right? But how can you make a gift of something that is not in your possession yet to give? So that I think is, I think the what becomes a very interesting question of how it is that anybody says that he can consecrate even the motar, even that which is left over before it actually is in existence. Well, I, you know, I think that there's a theme to, the, to today's DAP, right? We started speaking about Truma and now we're talking, talking about motar is just how complicated these issues of food are, right? Like, what do you, you know, you can't just saying something was consecrated or had hectic status was not a little deal. I just always like these things when we learn them because I see like how different this is than like, you know, what consumes us halachically as Jews today. Like we don't think about these things and it takes up a lot of time in the Gemara. Um, it does take a lot of time in the Gemara. I think that some of these things are streamlined nowadays and I think some of them it's just sadly, right? It's irrelevant because of the way we don't have all of these things up and running. I mean, and we can't in the absence of a Beit HaMikdash, in the absence of continuing that level of tradition from the Beit HaMikdash. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Marinka's review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this DAP in our Talk from Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.